Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending March 6th. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up this week, you will hear our uh, very special conversation with former Richmond footballer Alex Rant. He was in to talk about his new children's book, Monkey's Tale, a tiger and friends book. Uh, but we also got a little scoop from him. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, Adam Christou came in for Game Changes and talked about a new game called Wide Ocean Big Jacket. And uh, we also had a bit of a chat about taking a well-deserved... A well-deserved sick day. Yeah. Uh, I came back from paternity leave and uh, brought everyone up to speed on the adventures of Gabe the Babe. Uh, Digger was in talking citrus and we spoke to author Sanaa Maha about her book, A Woman Like Her, The Short Life of Kandil Baloch. Triple R. Premiership player Alex Rance is a five-time All-Australian who played 200 AFL games for Richmond Tigers, serving as co-vice-captain and winning the club's best and fairest. He announced his retirement in December last year and the decorated footballer has now released a children's book, his third. After Tigers Roar and Rabbits Hop, this one's called Monkey's Tail. And the star defender joins us now. Alex Rance, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, okay... I've read the book, How the Monkey Hurts Himself, Can't Play With His Friends, and Seeks to Find Meaning Despite the Setback. I'm going out on a limb here like a monkey. Are there any parallels? Uh, no, none at all. None at all. This is, uh, I just pulled this one straight out of the imagination. Bank and there's, uh, there's no experiential you know, story told here. It's, uh, yeah, it, it is the story pretty much of my, my 2019 season where uh, my world got sort of turned on its head a little bit and a little bit of injury, a little bit of self-reflection and uh, out came a pretty interesting book. Mm. At what point in uh, that whole process last year did you go... I'm going to use this for a children's book. Uh, well, none of the, the three books that I've written so far ever really had a, you know, I'm going to write a book about this. It's I'm a pretty introspective person and I'll write notes on my life. I'll write notes on whatever flies into my head. I've got a, plenty of inventions that have uh, not come off the ground yet. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just a, um, a journaler. So, yeah, this story, when I was reflecting on it, thought um you know this this could be a a lot of people could be in a similar position where they feel like their identity is stuck a lot with what they do as a job or maybe what they did when they were younger and and things change when you when you get older and sometimes it takes a a pretty big event sometimes it can just take a a life choice that that, that just changes so yeah a lot of my books are a lot about experience and and just being reflective at what point did you think um all these internal um, journal writings and stuff did you think oh I'll write a children's book was it you that thought of that or was it somebody else that went you should write a children's book uh, well it all started when I was in Africa I um, we just won the grand final and that's when I wrote my first book and yeah. I, I I wanted to share that with people because when, when I was younger books were such a almost like a time capsule when I think back to like Where's Wally and Mad Magazines Mm. and The Three Musketeers like that brings me back to a time when you know I was young and footloose fancy free had no cares and so I wanted to make sure that um, you know that first book was a a time capsule for my mates and for the fans and uh, for all Richmond supporters that oh yeah I remember that that's when Richmond won their first premiership and it got them out of that really dark time so a lot of my my writings were more so because as a gift to my close friends and hopefully could be shared with with the rest of the, the Richmond community too. Before finishing high school at a grammar school, you went to a pretty arty school. Is that right? Yeah. What, what, what were your interests there? 
Uh, well, uh, obviously, my, my family's... Uh, well, not obviously, it's very presumptuous, but uh, <laughs> my family uh, has a religious background. And so uh, we went to a non-denominational school, which was more like a music and art school because a lot of other big private schools have sort of a religious bias to them. So uh, music and art were things that were pretty cool. My sister, she was uh, the brainiac of the family and I was more the, the arty, creative one. Uh, not so much, um, you know, drawing and things, but I did drama and uh, public speaking and things like that and um, my mum she can uh, she can talk with a mouthful of marbles underwater so uh, I, I got that part from her too so it was awesome for me to just be more than a, a jock you know mm-hmm. like this school was um, you know I kicked the footy all the time at lunch but there was all these other parts to my life which I feel made me just more than a, than a footballer did you ever when you were playing footy did you ever feel like you wanted to get that part of you out a little bit more yeah, and that was probably the biggest challenge across my football journey is, and it's a little bit reflective in the storyline of the book, sometimes you do things without really understanding the full ramifications. So all these other elements of my life, you know, I loved making people laugh and I loved public speaking and things like that, but I didn't realize how big of an audience I actually had now. Mm. And so it almost brought my... Um, fame of lack of a better word I sound like a bit of a flog saying that but you know to to a new height because you know I did postcards I did the footy show I did all these skits online and stuff which I loved because I used to always do them with my mates but then but like now you've got a bigger audience. A huge audience mm. that now, like, I can't walk down the street without people going, oh, you know, don't get it on the slip and slide again. You know, yeah. when are you going to do something? <laughs> do something do you really something. brought that on yourself, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> like, dance clown. Make, yeah. me, like, make me a balloon animal. Mm. So it's like, uh, you know, that, that's not completely who I am. It's a part of me and, you know, I'm not sh- ashamed of it. But well, you've got, This book is about refinding your identity after an injury effectively have you now that you've finished footy are you still working out who Alex Rance is post football and post the Richmond Tigers football club I think you never really know completely who you are life's a journey and you experience new things new people come into your life old people go out of your life and and different things happen to you and so I guess the thing that I want to come through out of this book is to constantly be introspective to constantly think about yourself and you know is everything the way that you thought it was going to be when you were Mm. when you were younger um but in answer to your question yeah i feel like i do have a lot more clarity now i've got a lot more time because football to be great at it is it's very selfish and you need to be very consumed in it and it needs to take over your life because Mm. it's so competitive and every kid wants to do it so now that I have the time to reflect and, and spend on other areas of my life, like my family, my faith and, and fitness and other things like that, it's it's given me a bigger opportunity to balance that all out. And Howler Monkey in the book uh, <laughs> seeks, seeks the solace and wisdom of older monkey. Um, who, who in your life do you depend on? Who provides that perspective for you? Uh, well... Yeah, I guess Howler Monkey isn't necessarily one person. Uh, sorry, Howler Monkey. The oldest monkey isn't exactly the um, one person for me. It's it's almost a collective. Mm. Um, it, what do they say? It takes a, a tribe to raise a child and I'm still a very young person. Uh, but my mum and my dad and my, and my sister and brother-in-law, they've been really good sounding boards. Um, my, my player manager, which is kind of a strange one because mm. it sort of comes across as a bit businessy, but he and I are really good mates and it's um, he's had a lot of experience in the uh, the sporting field so he we bounce off each other a lot I've had a lot of coaches or even a lot of my mates that are this, younger than me have have educated me on different areas of life because they've experienced things that I haven't and um, so specifically you know Dylan Grimes and Dave Asprey who um, 
They feature in the book. Oh, I which won't, ones, I won't which tell you. are they? So if there's a, I was trying to work that out. So there's a, a monkey with, with cowboy boots on. Dave's a country boy. Oh, so he, uh, subtle. He, he, gets, he gets a rep there with the R.M. Williams. And uh, Dylan Grimes owns a winery. So there's uh, there's some grapes on a, a drunk tree. Monk. <laughs> yeah, a drunk monkey. So he's the monkey that's on the floor rolling around with, with bottles all around him. So, yeah, just a few of those those guys um, all sort of culminate in that oldest monkey's wisdom. Is there something that you're missing um, or alternatively actually that you're not missing at all from the football life that surprised you? So I, I assume you'd miss being around your friends all the time um, in that way that a football club provides you with that. But is there something that you're missing that's kind of surprised you? Um, you're right with the, with the friendship thing. I think you realise, and it's like any, once you leave any form of comfort zone, how convenient sometimes friendships are. That, yeah. that we see each other all the time. We bump each other, into each other mm. in the hallways, but how often do you think of each other outside of that and, and put time into that relationship other than it just being a, con- a convenient friendship? So that's probably one of the things that I, it's sort of taken me a little bit by surprise is, is how much work goes into friendships yeah. um, because I had 40 mates or 50 mates because I had coaches as well that I was able to just see every day and connect with and share things with and now it's like oh there's where is everybody yeah. um, so that that's one thing that that's sort of shocked me a little bit but the other thing on a positive note is is how much time I actually have now to do other things and it's and it's dangerous because my <laughs> mind is naturally very creative and wants to do things and I don't want to get back into the bad habit of just filling it up with stuff so mm. it's about just now enjoying a little bit of a ride just to see what happens as a result of it. Mm. But there are a lot of inspiring athletes who have come back from major injury what window are you giving yourself to return to the game? Uh, well <laughs> that's to say that if I actually do come back to the game uh, look I'm really content with well, you got to get a lot no, of no, 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 I'm saying I'm not, I'm not suggesting you definitely can't but what yeah, I'm not saying there's a window on you definitely these two, will. These two are very passionate Richmond supporters. <laughs> no, right we're here. not. Don't doubt us. <laughs> Sorry. I knew there was something dodgy going on here. Um, I, look, I, I love the game and I, I love what I've contributed and I, I, I'm not going to completely rule out the fact that I could come back. But it's at, at this stage, I'm really happy with the life balance that I have mm. and I don't regret any of my um, time spent at Richmond because it made me who I am. Um, and I'm proud of the, the effort that I put in there to, to achieve what we did. So, yeah, it, it's it's a constant thing that it's almost like, and this is a bad analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway, uh, being an alcoholic and constantly working in Dan Murphy's. I know that if I go back to playing for Richmond... <laughs> a great analogy. <laughs> I know that if I go back to playing for Richmond, I'm going to love it so much that I'm going to, it's going to consume my life and my mm. balance is going to go out again. So I'm happy where I'm at. What about a career in comedy? <laughs> oh, do you think I'm funny enough to do yeah, that? I, yes. the, the, the theory that I always had, and <laughs> I, I, I'll ask you guys what your favourite comedians are, but Kramer was always mine ah. because I love very, and Mr. Bean, I love very physical humour. I'm yeah. not super witty, but I used to think that I'll do stuff where they're either going to laugh with me or they're going to laugh at me, but at least they're going to be laughing. So yeah. that was sort of my, my comedy ethos. But, a bit uh, of slapstick. Yeah, a bit of slapstick. But, Australia uh, needs more slapstick. Mm. <laughs> Who was the last sort of good slapstick? Oh, Lena and Woodley. Lena, of course, yeah. Lena and Woodley. Yeah, I love Lena and Woodley. Also, um, uh, Sam Simmons. Yep. He, yeah. He's, oh, he's sort of. I like his sort of. But he's odd. Too. He's odd. He's odd. Yeah. Yeah. I like his humour. <laughs> Here what, we go. A little covering all topics. Yeah. Uh, so if you well, if you're not going to be a stand-up comic, what do you think life looks 
like, what are you seeing for you in the next year or so? What do you want to do? I know you're going to Nepal. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so there's there's so many elements to my life that I'm really looking forward to spending a bit more time with, um, two of which are my nephews. So my sister's got uh, two young lads and just to spend a bit more time with them and be that... Um, I guess dopey fun uncle that's that's around. Um, so yeah, that that's probably the main thing that I want to put my time into. Obviously, spiritually, everyone talks about that. I want to put some more time into that. Um, but my, I've got a school, the academy. So I started a school three years ago. That um, that's that's my job. That's what I, I get paid to do now. So um, yeah, I, I've always had a passion for education and, and helping people out. So the academy gives me a perfect platform to be able to help young kids 17 and 18 to, to find their passion, re-engage with an education, and 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 get something out of it. Do you think you're a really good? Do you think you're a good teacher? Um. I guess it depends who's learning from me. Yeah, uh, but, but it, it, that, you, would you call yourself a teacher in that capacity? Um, in a certain way, yes. I think that um, across my journey at Richmond, the 12 years, to, to be a leader, I think you need to be a good teacher because um, you either teach people by example or you teach people by um, you know walking the journey with them. And so... I think I've learned a lot about my uh, teaching style across the way, but I'm officially in my title isn't a teacher, but I teach and educate the teachers themselves culturally about how we can engage and things I've learned from Richmond. I, I teach the kids about, you know, these are the issues that I've had and if they've got any questions about the football industry and they want to know more. So I believe that I'm a, I'm never going to say I'm a brilliant um, teacher because there's no no facts to back that up yet but I do really enjoy education and teaching. You're an old monkey. <laughs> That's I, right. Is, yeah, there's almost a double symbolism. Yeah. I could be the new oldest monkey <laughs> of someone else's uh, howler monkey tail. I feel like there's a sequel in this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's oh. right. Uh, well, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. Mm, uh, and it's, there's, it's the third in series, so is this just going to keep rolling? Um. At this stage, I like it at three and I feel like it's almost a good bit of finality for me to just say, you know, here's my story. It's a bit of a full stop Um, because they've all told different parts of my life. Like, you know, this was our team. This was one of my really good mates and this is my story. It kind of paints the whole picture of, of, of my life. And um, I, I, the other thing that I wanted it to be was that when parents read it, because the kids aren't really going to know the hidden meaning. It's like, you know, imagine a three-year-old saying, look, it's not what I do, but why I do it. <laughs> You'd be like, right over right now, get out of here. It's not, I don't think it's about that so much. Them, it, but it's about the parents sort of reflecting and being, oh, you know, I resonate with that. Mm. And, and it being a, a mutually beneficial thing that the children see the beautiful pictures and that Shane McGowan did an amazing job on. Um, but also the parents are like, oh, that's a cool, that's a cool story. I want to read that yeah. again to my kid. All right, well, Monkey's Tale, a Tiger and Friends book by Alex Rant, uh, which is the third book, is out now via Alan and Unwin. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Alex, and go Tigers. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, we're very excited that mm. Daniel Burt is back. Uh, you've been on parental leave. I have. Yeah, but you keep apologising for Oh well, yeah. you know, you like I, I, you know, I, I let a baby yoko us. We it split <laughs> us up, and but, uh, but well, I am. Back. We are back. back, and you know, I just spent two weeks working on my dad bod, and uh, it's looking and- good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and the the gifts as well. Like uh, my 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 sister got me this pen, uh, and well, I think it's probably. 
pen for Gabriel. But the name Gabriel didn't come through in time, so oh. she had to get an engraved chubfish. Oh, oh so it's no, this, this child's going to know. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. He know, he'll he'll know. I mean, we're still. Do you still I, call I him? Gub- we've yeah. we've knocked it down to Chub. Right. Oh. And so hopefully <laughs> it'll be all right. I think you yeah. should have knocked it down to Fish. <laughs> well, really? Oh, yeah. no. Fishy. Well, now he uh, because he, we have to get him. We have to plump him up. This is the idea because a maternal health nurse came around. Yeah. Because you you take your child home. Was and she you, terrifying? Well, I think so. Yeah, they're mildly they're always <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, and you know you never know if you can get Nurse Ratchet or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's also suddenly you're on you know you're auditioning in, with your own child like I had to change a nappy in front of a professional. Wow, and, mm. how'd you go? I was all right. I mean, the thing is, well, I'll tell you what happened. I haven't really come to terms with it myself. Normally, right. I would do it on the change table. Well, he slashed all over my couch, oh. and, I, and I didn't want to change him on my couch. Oh, oh, but she was she around, was and I'm like, "Oh, stop! You're going upstairs. We'll do it here." And then, anyway, so that threw me. I think that threw my rhythm off. Fair enough. What did you do in oh, the moment? Were you and, like, then, oh. and then I panicked. There was another time. There was another maternal health nurse where I was changing him, and I panicked, and I put his. <laughs> I was undressing him to get weight. Yes, because it's all about him putting on weight. We're calling it the chubbening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I had to take his clothes off. But I was sort of in a anyway. I took this singlet down the the other way. Oh, in head in the wrong hole. It, well, or? I was taking it off, so it went past his feet instead oh, of over Daniel. his head. Yeah. So I, you know, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and what did they say to them? No, I feel she, like a couple of days didn't pick him up and walk out the she, door. Yeah, she went to her notebook and made yeah. a little. <laughs> no, but it's it's you know it's it's very fun and it's all the family's very excited. Um, it's the weird thing is because the amount of time that I'm changing nappies and I'm so you know so vulnerable and I'm so caring and it's and I'm and I just it's like and he has no memory of this. No. Yeah, like all of and so you'll no forget wonder. about it eventually. Well, yeah, but it's you know how you're uh, saying that you're not going to be vulnerable and caring as he no, gets older. No, I will be, but it's it's you know how because I'm trying to savor it now before he learns you know contempt and swear words and you know tells me he didn't ask be born and all that, uh, which will be you know when he's a teenager. Surely. But and but I feel like teenagers would be nice to their parents if they had a memory. Of this time? Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So maybe you just record everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Remember this? Yeah. Every night. I, I like that in, uh, I like the swaddling because I'm. Are you good are you at good it? Swaddler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I enjoy it. I like, I like the fact that he's, I don't want to use the word entombed. He's ensconced really in a, in a blanket and he, that, that, that's good. Like yes. he can't move his arms. Like a straight jacket. Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you like what? No, do, when you swat it, when they're all like, yeah, but what like a burrito. Up, but yeah. what is good about? Are you saying it's good because he can't move? Well, it's cute and he can't move, and I, you know, but it's <laughs> but that's it's good. comforting. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, and you don't have to worry about him. That's I right. Guess, when he's exactly. all wrapped up, yeah. I feel like the police should introduce swaddling. <laughs> Find a way to get rid of handcuffs. But that's not a bad Imagine idea. Imagine how calming that would be. Yeah, exactly. If they're like, like all right, just re- roll over. Yeah. I swaddle yeah. you. 
Oh, I like this. You're under arrest and you're back in the womb. Yeah, yeah get a like a weighted blanket instead of <laughs> yeah. handcuffs. Yeah. Put some red lights in the back of the DV van oh. yeah. and re-womb people. Yeah. It might be just what the criminal justice yeah. system needs. Whale noises oh. in the back of the DV van. Oh, yeah. Mm. I'm trying to change the world here. Uh, but it's, you know, and I drove him home because, you know, I'm ne- obviously I'm never going to get a baby on board bumper sticker. I'm not going to do that. No, but I kind of get why you'd want one. Because what about people? We'll get you uh, one if you like. Well, what about I, people honking you and stuff? You just want to go chill out. Well, it's it's more about I want to signal to the world why I'm such a cautious Crap drive. Yes, totally. So it's not about them, you know, being up me and me. I'm just saying, hey, I, the reason why I look like I'm driving like I've got glaucoma and I'm, you know, 96 is because... There's a baby on There's board. a baby and I... But that does also stop them from need... tailgating you. If they <laughs> yeah, can... yeah. But you need, like, more information just on that baby on board. You need, like, an extra bit of, like, like seriously, I've just had it, all right? This is day one. I'm driving home from the hospital. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. Back it's off, very baby stressful. on board. And yeah. now, now Jesse, because when we're driving, and he likes driving, kids like driving, don't they? Sure. Well, oh, like oh, the smoothness of the road yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Get him on the train. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's if you want to put him to sleep. Cobblestones and a train. Oh, away you go. Sad. Yeah. Well, he because now because Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. Cobblestones, sorry. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, do trains don't go over cobblestones. Is no. that, that, yeah. No, but walk, walk, walk over cobblestones. Oh, like a pram. Yeah. This is the thing. My pram, state of the art. Oh, yeah. It's just the world's best pram. And uh, I'm like, why can't shopping trolleys adopt some of this technology? Because it's it, it's so Maneuvers. Mo- oh, maneuverable and, oh, I love it. Did you get top of the – did you get the number one pram? There's a pram that everyone wants. I don't know what it is. Is it really? Yeah. But there's How a- many wheels has it got? It's got three. Oh, no, yeah. no, oh, no, yeah. no, sorry. It's got – well, it's got four. Uh, why are, th- are they the ones with yeah, – Three. The, yeah. the, the and tri- they more- were very in for a while. Yeah. Oh. Well, this is – I don't know. Like I'm just working it out. The thing is, there's a there's a holder on the side for a drink, and I'm like, you shouldn't put hot coffee there. And I'm wondering if That's I'll why break the got rule. A holder. Well, it says on it, it says no hot liquids. I'm like, how close I'll put is it? I'm going to break that. How close is it to the ba- baby's head? The holder. Well, close enough, I suppose. Like forty centimeters. Oh, I don't think you should have any hot liquid. All right, baby. okay. And what about a glass what a, water bottle? What about a beer? Yeah, yeah, beer. Yeah. Oh, do do what you want. Just <laughs> you be do, responsible. You? Yeah, it's weird that I've I've also I didn't realize that I have so much vocabulary to describe poo. Like oh. I didn't. I know you don't want to hear this. No, Sarah. I actually discovered this when I uh, got a dog. Oh, really? Yeah, I've routinely uh, describe Ralph's poos to Andrew to in whom? text message. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's quite you surprise <laughs> oh, yeah. yourself. Tell me more. <laughs> Well, I don't want to – it is still before – it's very early in the morning still. But, uh, you know, like smashed lentils. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Blended kale was one as well, oh, like when I have kale. to – Yeah. And it, But people – the weird thing is I'm not just volunteering it. People are interested, like medical people. They want to oh, know. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm. What's his poo look like? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, I've got to reach into my recipe mm. book to – I love. I'm hoping someone's made themselves a smoothie for breakfast this <laughs> morning. Triple R. Uh, the break 
Belfast's Game Changer is here. Welcome once again, Adam Christou. Hello. Hi. It's good to be back. So it is, lovely isn't to it? see you. Yeah, Adam. welcome back, Daniel. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's nice to have you back on air. It is. Well, it's good for me. I don't know about you. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what you been playing? Uh, I've, I've been playing a bunch of stuff. But um, the, the thing that I wanted to talk about today is a game called Wide Ocean Big Jacket. Um, because I'm obsessed with short quick narrative games at the moment because it's you know you work in full time it's hard to find you know the 50 60 80 hours that you need to finish a big epic so why not play something more small something more bite-sized something that feels like going to the movies or going out to the theater mm. um and why do ocean big jacket fits into that kind of niche really well what so a great name it reminds me of that the song, Short song? Joke. You yeah. Short Joke. I'm yeah. so relieved that your brain went there as well. Because now I'm going... Do you know the song I'm talking about? I have about? not thought of that oh song my... in about a oh, decade. Yeah, and apologies for it. It's in my brain. Oh, cake, it's definitely not... in there. Cake. Yeah, oh, that's what custard. it was. Cake, yeah. Cake and custard. Jelly trifle. There you go. And a long jacket. Yeah. Sorry. So that's actually what the game's about. Surprise, everyone. It's a lyric video to that. Uh, uh, But it actually kind of fits in that realm quite nicely. It's a game about nostalgia in a lot of ways. Uh, It's made by two people um, uh, out of a production company called Turnfollow. um, And it's out now on itch.io for PC, Linux, and Mac. And it's about seven bucks. Um, And it's a hybrid of two genres of of games that have kind of been really building in popularity over the last few years. Um, A genre called The Walking Simulator and another genre called the visual novel. Um, Walking simulator is a really weird term for describing a game genre. Um, And it's kind of a little bit derogatory as well. So it's a a genre that popped up in the early kind of or mid-2000s, 2010s, and was a response to a lot of really evocative first-person shooter games that were doing a lot of storytelling uh, via environmental design. So you're kind of like playing like a Doom-style game, you've got your gun and you're shooting enemies, but the room that you're in is telling a really complete, interesting story. There might be set design or there might be things that happen in the space that you're in that's very evocative. And because you're in the first person, you're looking at this space and you're kind of drawing a story out of like the, the various disparate kind of set designs and dressings of spaces that you're walking through. So games like Dear Esther and Gone Home um, are kind of like really big cornerstone walking simulator games. And the reason they call them walking simulators is because there's no combat in them you're just walking around and exploring environments so the idea is like simulating walking or exploring a space and having that space tell a story to you Um, and the visual novel is a genre of games which is basically what it sounds like it's a novel or it's a short story that is brought to life through the gaming medium whether through visual elements or an interactive fiction element where you're picking and choosing where the story goes um, and, and generally it's a very like read reading heavy experience. So you um, don't need any skills to play this game? Not really. I mean, all you have to do is walk around in an environment and press a button which starts conversations and then you talk to people around you. Um, so Wide Ocean Big Jacket tells the story of two couples on a camping trip. Um, there's cool Uncle Brad and his wife, Cloanne. Um, and they're taking Brad's niece, Maud, along for a camping weekend together. Maud has roped in her best friend, Ben, along for the ride. And I think they might be, for the first time ever, exploring dating. Oh. And they're about 13. So it's kind of a story about two couples, essentially uh, a married couple who are exploring like tension in their relationship and a young, young couple exploring what it means to actually like each other for the very first time. Mm. All set through this really pastel, kind of beautiful um, cartoon-style camping trip, which just takes over kind of two days of their time to kind of go through. But really, you're, you're kind of spending an hour with these characters at most. 
Um, and I, you, you get to control all four characters through this experience. You'll kind of start off with Maud and kind of see her kind of point of view through this story and then kind of move on to different characters from there. You'll spend some time with Brad. You'll spend some time with Cloanne. Then you'll spend some time with the various characters as they group off and do things. And the big takeaway from me is it reminds me a lot of like really good kind of art house cinema or like a really good theater play that you've kind of stumbled into and you end up watching. Um, and, you know, I think that that is something that is, is, is what I really want from video games at the moment, you know, just like really interesting character studies, being able to inhabit these characters because you're kind of walking around as them in a space. You feel a level of connection to them that's quite strong, a level of intimacy in there that's quite um, tangible as well. Um, kind of sounds like you're describing a Wes Anderson film in a video. Yeah, like it gives me a little bit of that kind of Wes Anderson cheekiness. I also go to kind of Noah Baumbach, who did oh, Marriage yeah, Story yeah. really recently. And it's because the writing in this is really, really sharp. Like these characters are very funny. They're very witty. Um, they have really good banter that kind of goes back and forth between each other. And you really start to kind of get a really good sense of who they all are by the end of your time with them as well. Um so playing these games, you don't you, you don't set out to achieve anything necessarily. Or no, you, not really. You're, you're you're kind of placed into scenes almost. It's kind of like I guess movie is the best analogy, except everything's interactive. So the opening sequence is the four of them in a car driving towards the camping destination, and you basically control a camera as it swings around and focuses on a different person in the car, and then you start up a conversation with that primary person as you're focusing on them, and then read the dialogue between each other as it pops up on screen. But you can't control the dialogue like you you don't no. make the dialogue so there's it's no all... control over the dialogue you're mm. essentially reading a novel that's kind of weaved into this interactive huh. space that you kind of walk through and interact in so once you actually start setting up camping you'll do some kind of rudimentary things like walk around the campsite find some stuff from the trunk of the car and move it over to a table but then for the most part you're kind of doing those little mundane things before you find an excuse to go over and talk to someone and continue that dialogue which kind of pops up on screen so once you've played it can you play it again and it's different? No. Um, there's there's like one or two moments in this game where like things fundamentally change, but they're minor little beats on right. the story altogether. So that's why, once again, this feels almost like a, a reflection mm. of, of what you would get from a cinema experience or a good piece of theatre. Um, so given that, given that it's a, you know, games like this are literally divided into chapters, aren't they? Mm. So so it's, it's visual and novelistic. What is the role of a trailer in selling... A game. Oh, the trailers, I think, are really important because, you know, there's there's a lot of things that go into what makes a good visual novel or a good walking simulator. And I think graphical aesthetics are really important here. This game has, like, a really beautiful... It's, it's three-dimensional, but it looks at any moment like it's part of, like, a 2D graphic artwork illustration that you kind of walk through. And I think a lot of people get really drawn into the kind of beautiful graphic side of games or being able to explore a lush environment that looks really evocative. But also being able to get a hint of, like, the real sense of humour that's in this game because it is very funny i mean that this is a game that likes to use bold font to describe things around you in the environment so if you're like walking around the campsite and you walk up to the tent like big giant font will pop up saying the tent <laughs> but even better is when teenager maud needs to go to the bathroom and she's having a conversation with ben her best friend and she's basically like 
He's like, I need to find a bathroom right now. She's like, I'm going anywhere. And this classic moment of exploring like a campground to find the perfect place to pee kind of happens. <laughs> so you'll walk up to a tree and it'll be like, pee here in big words. Or you'll walk See, over to a bush. that's a Anderson film to me. <laughs> it's got a bit of that humour. And, yeah. and Maud is like a tremendous 13-year-old. She's like filled with one-liners. There's a brash boldness and a wild sense of humour from her. I feel like... I really got to inhabit what she's like and get her sense of humor. There's a great moment where um, both Maud and Ben decide to escape from the camping trip and go to the beach for a little bit and bump into a bunch of people which are just called mean teens on the screen. And it's just a bunch of teen- teenagers that are just hanging around by, <laughs> by the beach, being really rude and crass to these poor young Aww. kids that have just walked over to them. And it's got that, yeah, that great sort of Wes Anderson, Noah Baumbach sort of energy about it. It's just a very funny, smart, whip-fast kind of game and you know there's so many good moments in here i don't want to spoil too much because you only spend an hour with them and i think being in the narrative is the great experience of this game but there is a tremendous fireside horror story moment where one of the characters the one you would least expect tells a really terrifying story that just freaks everyone out um there the mean teens is just a highlight as well and then there is a moment where two characters walk up a mountain just going hiking that i think is like a a really tremendous moment of exploring these two characters and their their very complex relationship to each other which i don't think you get that level of nuance in games often all right white white ocean big jacket where can you find it you can find it on itch.io or Mm -hmm. steam uh for pc mac and linux made by tender claws uh tender follow tender follow okay adam christie thanks heaps no worries melbourne's own Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your pants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop saying about dirt? It's that time to sit back and soak in the wisdom of Breakfasters gardening guru, Digger. Good morning, Digger. Morning. Beautiful, <laughs> mild morning out there. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's it quite was, humid. It was, yeah, it was lovely. I got up and thought, oh, I've got to do the run to the... Shower and it was warm. Mm. Did you so run to the shower? S- yeah. <laughs> Not this morning. Yeah. No, so I just just sorted. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you make sure you time it so that no one else is up? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you, hear the, the, you hear the multiple alarms go off and then it's a, it's a race in the shower. This like, is it. Yeah. Not today, darling. Not today. <laughs> uh, so, what's on your mind gardening wise? Um, so, it's uh, as a Haughty person, you can't go anywhere without being asked citrus questions. Mm. You know, oh, I've got this problem with my lemon. It's okay. just it's never ending. And is this like the chickens of? It's like Birdman always gets asked about chickens. Yeah. Citrus is the chickens of horticulture. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, and probably the same answer that he would give: just eat them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, now it's actually really appropriate time to feed them. So citrus are what we call gross feeders, being evergreen, shallow rooting trees and producing, you know, quite a substantial volume of fruit and a complex fruit. Yeah. They're actually pretty hungry and most people really neglect them. Hence, you rarely see a a lemon that isn't affected by something. Mm -hmm. So now is the time of year. They're about three quarters of the way through their fruit setting. So the fruit are about golf ball size now and will be ripening by winter time. So... In that process, they've got to feed, feed, feed. And because their roots are so shallow, if you don't feed them at least four times a year, they run out. Okay. Yeah, because other plants pinch it because they don't go deep like other trees to to mine nutrients that leach through other plants. So they're effectively feeding in the same zone as shrubs and ground covers. So there's a lot of competition. Hmm. Um, And so you see lots of yellow leaves. You see leaves curling down, tip hooking. You see all different sorts of stuff. So... um, 
you know, it depends on where you sit on the organic path. Um, my favourite organic fertiliser is chicken. <laughs> so hence keep chickens. <laughs> um, it's just so diverse, you know. Chicken depend- poo. Chicken just poo. To be clear. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. No. Ground up yeah. chicken. <laughs> well... Um, <laughs> chicken stock. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, chicken, chicken poo, because they're omnivores and so they eat a little bit of everything, um, their manure is really diverse and high in all sorts of nutrients. So in particular, um, citrus need always need a bit of nitrogen. So nitrogen is what's used to produce leaves. But the main one at this time of year to add around the bottom of your citrus in solid form would be better. Uh, magnesium and iron. So they're the two things you'll start to see. Magnesium deficiency, you'll start to see a little bit of intervenal yellowing in the leaves. So that is the leaves will go yellow, but the veins will stay green. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see a little yellow triangle at the base of each leaf, and that's a magnesium deficiency. Now, that those symptoms will appear on the old leaves first. So if you're not the new leaves at the top of the branches, but a little bit further down the tree, that's magnesium deficiency. Okay. Really easy to fix. Um Epsom salts. Right. Really? Oh, Epsom salts is magnesium sulfate. So if you buy magnesium from the nursery, you'll pay 20 bucks for it. You go to the supermarket, you'll pay 2 bucks for it. Mm. Okay. And so you can mix that in water or even just, you know, um, and, and liquid feed it. And you probably do that once a fortnight. Um, but you could just make it into a, like a slurry and pour it around. Now, chickens eat a lot of stuff that's high in magnesium as well. There's lots of you know, food stuffs that are high in magnesium. So hence, chicken manure would be another option. And then there's also iron. Now, iron deficiency is very similar to magnesium um, in that you get intervenal yellowing, but it occurs on the younger leaves first. So you'll see that on really you know, the newest leaves, the ones closest to the top. So they're the two main things that citrus rob from their leaves in order to feed the fruit. Mm-hmm. And what, what's the sign of iron deficiency? So intervenal yellowing, okay. but it'll be on the, on the younger leaves first, right. not the older leaves. Okay. And then out of interest, what would happen if you planted a vitamin? Um, you'd need to plant a whole lot of it. Right. Yeah, so if you're using chicken manure, you'd probably, for a, a semi-established tree, about two kilos of chicken uh, manure. Okay. So it'd be like you know, half a decent bag around the base and mainly around the drip line, which is the outside edge of the tree. Don't pile it up against the trunk because the feeder roots aren't there. The feeder roots are on the outside they of the tree. Spread. Yeah. yeah. And Nat, you'd be surprised how many people I come across in life. It's like, but I just feed. Why aren't the reeds just the roots at the at the trunk? It's like, well, things get bigger. And when you talk about the competition below the surface, does do citrus always win? No, no, because they um, they have quite shallow, weak roots. It's, it's it's kind of a bit of anomaly in the in the plant world that such a robust plant with such large, thick leaves has a very small, fibrous little root system. It's almost like a little nest mm-hmm. directly underneath the tree. Rarely do they even go you know more than half a meter to a meter deep. That's it's a... funny because I think of citrus as quite robust. Yeah, yeah. everyone does. Yeah, yeah. but what I you're thought... describing sounds terrifyingly weak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which uh, to a certain extent makes them good for pots because they don't have a massive root system. Mm. But because the nest is so dense that if you're not replacing your potting mix all the time, they just run out of food and water, mm. and they end up just feeding off their own roots. So you have yeah. to actually repot constantly as well, not every just two put years. stuff in. Okay. Yeah, and every two years that citrus must come out of a pot and you get a larger pot and fresh potting mix, otherwise it'll just choke itself out. And is a magnesium deficiency in a citrus 
uh, tree. Is, what does that tell you about the environment where you're planting it? Um, it just tells you that you know you're not topping up the the what we call trace elements. So you've got your nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So if you look on the back of your fertilizers, you get this NPK ratio. They're the three biggest nutrients that plants use to feed. Um, so they control your leaf growth, your root growth, and um, your flowering and fruiting. So potassium is what um, helps fruits ripen, and phosphorus is what plants use to start the fruit buds. So at this stage, you need more phosphorus as well. That would that would come in handy. Mm. So if you're NPK, you need your K to be higher than your N and your P if you're looking at a standard fertiliser. Hard to do with chicken manure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone's tweeted in, uh, can you please, I mean, not that this might be hard for you to diagnose without being there but can you please ask what keeps eating my lemon leaves is there a is there a bug or something that is prone to uh there's a whole stack of stuff if it's um being chewed from the outside in it's probably a form of caterpillar but if it's being chewed from the inside out there is a thing called a citrus leaf miner which burrows into the middle of the leaf and then eats in squiggly lines eats its way out and is there a solution to these Pick off the leaf and feed it to your chickens oh. <laughs> or drown it. Pick up, just pick the leaves off. So in, in the plant world, if you prune it, which is picking a leaf is effectively pruning it, it'll just replace it. And yeah. also, how often do you have to check on these things before you become like a helicopter gardener? Um, well, that's the thing. We always work in, you know, prevention's better than the cure. So when you start to see, you know, yellowing, it's usually for a reason that it's it's trying to perform a new role and it doesn't have the nutrients to to do it just kind of like us you're low on energy so you build that into your gardening regime that you get on the front foot so the the trees are going to start yellowing because they're trying to finish their fruit therefore give them more food in autumn so that they can finish the jobs they need to do in winter Mm -hmm. so be and, proactive. And let's say you didn't do your advice. Yep. What would be the result of the, the taste of the fruit? Or um, you'll get effect? either very small fruit or the, the tree will self-thin. So it may just start dropping various numbers of fruit because it doesn't have the energy or the nutrient to, to ripen them. So it'll just dump it. Being right. a perennial plant, it'll just say, well, it wasn't a great year this year. I'll try again next okay. year. That's a bit mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. yeah. So And then I do the yellowing. And so that gets really bad. If the yellowing gets bad, it gets to you know severe chlorosis, it's called, and the leaves can even go white, and then they will drop. And I remember that it's all about photosynthesis. If you lose leaves, you can't photosynthesise. If we, you know, it's very scientific, but the magnesium is what helps produce chlorophyll and chlorophyll, the green pigment in chloroplasts, remember year nine, all this stuff again. <laughs> if it can't perform that function, it can't feed carbohydrates to the roots, which can't feed the fruit. Yeah. So the whole thing, the whole system collapses if they... If they're low on nutrients. So if you see premature citrus on the ground, it's possible it's low on magnesium. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah, and then you double check, reference that against the leaves, and then then you know what you've got. Can oh. I door knock my neighbours? Let them know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, you're not aware, but I've been stealing your lemons for years, and I think they're malnourished. And here's a bag of some yeah. yeah, over the fence. It's the least, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the least I can do. Thanks so much, Digger. Pleasure. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Based in Karachi, Pakistan, Sana Omar is a journalist who, for more than a decade, has covered stories on the country's art and culture, politics, business, religious minorities, and women. Her work has appeared in outlets, including the New York Times and Al Jazeera, and she's now written her first book, A Woman Like Her The Short Life of Kandil Baloch pieces together the story and murder of Pakistan's first celebrity by social media. And the author joins us now. Sanam, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. 
in a country where honour killings are tragically common, some rights groups put the total at around 1,000 per year, why did the death of Kandil have such an impact on Pakistan and yourself? Well, Kandil was Pakistan's first social media celebrity. She became famous for the things that she was doing on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, for her photographs and her videos. And for quite some time, I mean, if you think about it, when you open up your Facebook feed and you see these per- this person's pictures or her videos amongst the pictures of your friends and your family, we were following her for so long, we felt like we really knew her. And so while there may be hundreds of cases every year, when she was killed, it was very difficult to turn away from it and to say, I mean, you knew her name, you knew what she looked like, you thought you knew who she was. And to suddenly find out that that person has been murdered for the things that she was posting online, Mm. it really made a lot of people sit up and take notice of what was happening. Even the politics within her own family seemed to be... Absolutely. So her brother was the one who killed her. This is in July 2016. And she was just 26 years old at the time. And, you know, we saw this press conference with this man coming forward and saying, yes, I did it because my sister was so shameless. And I did this because she was bringing dishonor to our family. And all of you were seeing what was she, what she was doing online. And I decided to do something about it. Mm. You couldn't really turn away from that. It was the story that captured the world's attention for all the reasons that you laid out before, because people did know her um, and, and, and we did know her face and, and she, we'd got to kind of feel like we knew her at least. And this book kind of attempts, I suppose, to uncover who Candil really is, because while we felt like we knew her, we didn't really. How did you go about trying to find out who she really was? Um, you're, you're right. We thought we knew her, but in the last... A couple of days before she was murdered, a newspaper actually revealed her real name and sort of told us all of this information about her, the fact that she'd been married, she had a child, she was in an abusive marriage and she walked out. Um, And we suddenly realized we actually didn't know who this woman was. And I was amazed because I thought, you know, in this day and age with social media, being a celebrity on social media, how do you manage to fool hundreds of thousands of people and create this idea of yourself that they buy into or that they, you know, don't even question. We were so busy watching her videos or looking at her pictures that we never even paused to say, who is this young woman? Where did she even come from? And when I started to try and figure out, okay, who was she really? I became a hoarder, essentially. It was anyone who had anything to do with her, even if it was just, you know, a very sort of short meeting. If you'd met her, I wanted to meet you and talk to you about her. Mm. And my sense was that when you did meet people, people wanted to tell you about her. Is that right? Yeah, she had, I mean, a lot of her friends, her family members, um, even just people in her village who had seen her grow up, the woman had just been killed. And I think there was a lot of grief. There was a lot of anger about that. And people wanted to talk about her. They wanted to tell me about her. But then there were also so many people who were quite happy that this had happened. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to talk to me about, oh, we're so glad that this woman was punished in this way, that we don't have to think about her anymore, that she's been removed from the picture entirely. So they also wanted me to sort of hear their stories about her and what they thought. And she was sort of glibly compared to Kim Kardashian, but that's not quite a fair comparison, is it? No, it's not. I think, I mean... It's a comparison that a lot of people outside of Pakistan, I mean, you can instantly understand who I'm talking about or what kind of person I'm talking about 
why she became famous when we say Kim Kardashian. I think it's a very easy sort of introduction to her. But she didn't come from any kind of privilege. She came from a small village in rural Punjab in Pakistan, uh, came from nothing, essentially. And as I said, she was in an abusive marriage, walked out on that, decided I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to be financially independent. I'm going to have everybody here know my name. And that's exactly what she went on to do. Can you outline some of the um, content that she made that moves into sort of the subversive and sort of iconic um, territory? She really, I mean, she started out with a lot of, it was, you know, the stuff that we see many young women posting, like outfits, or she liked to sing. So she'd make videos of her singing her favorite songs. Um, She got crushes on everybody from singers to actors to uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan. She would make videos for them, like a Valentine's Day video. And then she slowly started to post things that were a bit more risque by Pakistani standards. So one example was when Pakistan was playing India in the T20 cricket match. Um, She posted a video where she was wearing this lime green bikini and she was doing a dance. And she said she posted on Facebook and said, you know, this is just the trailer. And if Pakistan (laughs) wins... I'm going to do a striptease on my Facebook page live mm. to celebrate. Pakistan didn't win, so we didn't get to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> the, like, the book examines why also why Kandil does this. She doesn't seem to get asked that question in Pakistan right. uh, very often, but when she starts doing uh, media interviews outside of Pakistan, the first thing international journalists ask her is, what does, your, what does this mean? What does yeah. your content mean? Why do mm. you do this? Yeah. Did you come to an understanding of why Candil did what she did in such a provocative way, almost in the face of being told, if you do these things, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, I think it was, you know, she might have started out with just wanting the attention and understanding that the attention was a means to other opportunities. So really, I think Kandil understood really well that when you're famous now, it doesn't even matter. You don't have to be particularly talented at something to be famous. As long as people are talking about you, it doesn't even matter what they're saying. They could be saying the worst things about you, but as long as they're talking about you, you're famous. And that fame for her translated into TV opportunities. She starred in a TV show. She was a singer. She got a lot of sort of small gigs through that. But then the reactions that people had to her, she started to sort of post things almost in response to that. So to say, you don't like to see my videos. You don't like what I'm doing, but why are you here? Mm. Why are you coming on this woman's Facebook page just to send her death threats or rape threats? Or why are you even watching my video? And sort of exposing the hypocrisy in people and this need to condemn a woman who behaves differently and to make her sort of realize that you should be ashamed of yourself. Mm. And she didn't want to back down in the face of that, so she kept pushing the envelope. And her sensibility seemed to be almost funny, like she was so provocative and didn't seem to care what people thought, which would have been deeply infuriating to conservative It was a lot of people turning around and asking, I mean, in a lot of her TV interviews, you'll see the, the person who's interviewing her will say, why don't you just stop? which is a question that we'll ask a lot of people when they're doing things on a public platform that elicits a strong reaction. And it's essentially a lot of people were asking her, why don't you back down? What kind of woman doesn't back down? What kind of woman refuses to feel shame? What does that even look like? And they were confused by her. And yeah, she had fun with it. She would post a lot of funny things. She had a great sense of humor. 
So essentially it was her just saying, I've moved past caring about how much you hate me. It doesn't have any meaning for me. And I'm going to occupy this space whether you like it or not. Mm. Do you think she knew that her life was at risk by posting this content? Like, which she I think she did. Yeah. I mean, to, to receive, she could post even just a very sort of innocuous selfie at this point yep. before she was killed and be getting rape threats or death threats. And then mm-hmm. when her real name was revealed and things like that, I mean, she went back to her parents' home. And if you think about it, this is a young woman caught in the middle of this media storm and this outrage. And her instinct was, I just want to go home. I just want to be with my parents. And unfortunately, that's where she was killed, in her parents' home. Candil's story really highlights the tension between the increase in use of social media in Pakistan. Pakistan seems to have really embraced social media. But at the same time, the tension between the I suppose the outlet that provides particularly for women uh, and the conservative religious um, uh, values of the country what do you think this case what do you think Candil's uh, loss of life what do you think her death has changed about that if anything I think more women have they they sort of drew so much courage from seeing her speak and behave the way that she did, even though she was constantly shamed for it. And I see a lot of young men and women right now in Pakistan who say, you know what, this is a space for us. This is a space for us to organize and to find our communities. And if we look at, you know, on the 8th of March, there's these women's marches happening across the country. And I see young people there right now, they'll share pictures of Kandil, they'll share stuff that she said at the marches themselves, they'll be there and they have these masks that they wear over their own faces and it's it's Kandil's face mm-hmm. and they want to represent her in those public spaces. And I really think they're seeing social media as a way to sort of find their communities, to organize, to come together and to sort of say, well, we belong here too, and this is what we want going forward. These are the new rules that we want to have. The old rules aren't working for us anymore, and let's come together and decide what are the new ones. And it's important not for Kendil's murder to have the intended chilling effect um, and, you know, so that the women's movement in Pakistan perseveres and honors her. Yeah, and just to sort of, I mean, make sure that she isn't erased, which is what a lot of people wanted, not just online, but offline as well, to continue to have her presence there. Mm. And you're speaking about the book tonight? I am, yes. Well, what's the, what are the, what's in store? So it's at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Mm-hmm. It's a free event. It's on tonight. And yeah, I mean, you just have to book online. But I'm going to be talking about the book, about just what the book has meant to people around the world, because it's sort of had this life of its own and come out in all these different countries, which I didn't expect. Um, it's been amazing to see the conversations even here in Australia around it. And what is the state of play with the case as it stands So the trial is concluded. Her brother was found guilty and he's in prison for life. After Kandil was killed, the legislation in Pakistan was changed uh, to make sure that anyone found guilty of committing a crime in the name of honor, um, there's just sort of no way out for you once Mm. you're found guilty. And what about the allegations with a well-known mufti? Yeah, he was... uh, The court couldn't find... um, They found him not guilty, but when the verdict was announced, it was amazing to see how many people turned around and said, this is so wrong. And, you know, she accused this man of behaving inappropriately with her 
a pretty prominent cleric. And that's what sort of set in motion this revealing of her identity and a, sort of an increase in the outrage towards her. And I think what's happening when you see that reaction to people saying he is guilty is people saying we need to question how complicit are we mm -hmm. in what happened to this young woman. I mean, when you accuse a man of doing something and it doesn't really play out or you don't get the support that you think you will, or you have people turning around and saying, why should we believe you? Why should we believe a woman like you? And then a young woman is killed. She's lost her life. I think for people to sit up and say... How complicit are we in everything that's happened? That's important. Mm. Has spending this much time talking about Candil and in her life and changed anything for you personally? I think it's, I mean, the thing that's really meant so much to me is just when I've been, you know, the book has come out in all these countries. I thought it was just going to be a South Asian book. I thought this was something we cared about, someone who meant a great deal to us. But then to be, you know, here in Australia and I hear women talking about her, women referencing the Hannah Clark case or referencing other stories um, in their own countries and not turning around and saying, oh, this is something terrible that happened in your country. Mm -hmm. But to have these conversations where they're saying, you know, we're, we're all thinking about the same kinds of issues. We're all anxious about the same things. We want to figure out a way forward. It may be playing out differently in our countries, but to have Kandil as a starting point for those conversations, I mean, that just means so much to me. Well, Sanam is appearing tonight at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre at 6.30pm. Uh, it's a free event, but bookings are required. Go to qvwc.org.au to hear uh, more conversation. And uh, a woman like her, The Short Life of Kandil Balosh, is out now. And we've been speaking with author Sanaa Ma. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you so much. Triple R. Once again, I'm going to say thanks to Nat Harris for filling in for me yesterday. Full disclosure, I took the day off because I was sad. I was very sad because mm -hmm. uh, my um, – many listeners will know that um, my dad has dementia and uh, a bed became available and uh, he moved into a home yesterday and it was all quite sudden and I went, I'm not equipped – to go to work and I had a couple of gigs on, on the Tuesday night um, and I cancelled two out – I had three gigs. I had I cancelled two out of the three um, and then, uh, yeah, and took the day off work and I'm very happy that I did it and yeah. it did wonders for my mental health. What a, what a new and groovy idea that you could be feeling I a little felt, bit mentally distressed and then not go to work. Do you know, I tell you what, it felt so good to do it. Once yeah. I made the decision and I've never been, you know – one of the, um, you know, all through my 20s it was always, I think because I worked in hospitality and it was always that, well, who's going to cover your shift? Yeah. Who's going to, no, you need to come in. So You're going to dock your pay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with you, is there? You'll be right. Come on, toughen up. Get out there. Um, <laughs> and I think also, you know, that was instilled with me from my parents as well. Like I, I remember I was on um, a... Um, probation period for this job and I got um I got hit by a car. Oh and <laughs> and you a lollipop lady? <laughs> no, I was on I was on my bike and I was um I was um crossing, you know, riding my bike across the road at an intersection and a car was coming the other way and they had their blinker on and I was like, Well they're turning, I'm gonna go in front of them. They didn't turn and then so I they went I kind of smacked into them but you know kind of um, anyway, whatever. I was fine. Like, no broken bones, just kind of um, I had a 
something happened to my shoulder. I had to wear it. I had my arm in a sling. and But mum and dad were away. And like a family friend is like a nurse at the hospital. She goes, oh, do you want to call mum? I'm like, yep. And I and I did. And I said, oh, mum, I've been hit by a car. I'm like, I'm fine. She goes, oh, yes, but you're, you know, you're okay. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'll be here for a few hours and then I'll go home. She goes, okay, are you going to work tomorrow? Oh. <laughs> so, and I was like, I said, mum, I've, I've been hit by a car. She goes, yeah, but you're okay. I'm like, yes, but, so you're going to work tomorrow? Because she was like, you know, you want to get this job. You want to show that, right. you know, you're doing the, you're doing a good thing. And I'm like. All right, so I went to, went into work the next day, and they were like, "You're an idiot. Go home." Oh, really? Yeah, like what you, can't you say do... to me in a sling. Hey, what you say you to me in a sling? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. You know, I uh, I think that that was a generational thing, though. That kind of you just oh, get up totally. and work. Yeah, I, I had when I did chemist rounds as a kid. I mum was all. I was to be fair, I was always trying to get out of the chemist rounds in the summer because you don't want to be riding around in the heat in forty yeah. degrees. But I remember her saying. One particular really hot day, I was like, I feel very unwell. I don't want to do this. She goes, I'm going to put you in the car and I'll take you around. And it's the only time I'm ever going to do this <gasps> because I just it – it was a really hot day and I think she saw there was probably yeah. illegal for me to be riding at that point. And so she helped me and just drove me around and we dropped it off. But then when I got home, I passed out in the lounge room and uh, she thought I was over-egging it. Like she was like, get up, yeah. Sarah. Get up, and I, and then I was like, no, I'm really not well. And then she put me on the counter, took my temperature, I had a temperature of forty, <gasps> and I had um, developed what's that childhood thing, rosy, rosy, where they get the rash all over them. Oh. Babies get it, mm. but I just developed. Oh, for some reason, I'd got it at like thirteen or fourteen, so I oh. also broke out in this massive rash. This is like that time that I had pneumonia, and my yeah, parents didn't. Right. Believe well, but they believed it. But. The satisfaction there was this kind of like I know that I'm really sick and this is terrible, but also yeah. there was this mild satisfaction inside of me going, "I'm so happy, I'm so dreadfully yeah. ill." To mm. prove to you that I wasn't being a weakling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There was um, I remember because obviously having a baby and looking at the baby and he's crying, and I don't get phased by the crying, like I, I let him cry. But yeah. uh, then I was remembered when um, Dad was making me a Milo, and he poured in boiling hot water into this you know, sippy cup or whatever. Yeah. And I took it and I drank it too soon and Jesus. I stole it all over my face. <gasps> and he just um, stared at me stony faced. <laughs> and I was like, and it's like haunted me. I'm like, it was this callous indifference. And then now I'm like, oh, maybe it's so that I don't read any panic in him and so yeah. therefore I don't panic. But um, I reckon I'll do that to Chubfish too. Oh. Give him the stony face. I actually think it, I reckon it might be emotionally better because my dad was the kind of person where if you knocked a fork off a table, mm. he'd go. <laughs> and so if you hurt yourself, yeah. he'd scream and he's like bellow and run. And, scream, and you didn't know if you were in yes. trouble or if he was trying to help you. And as a result, I'm quite a, you guys would know, I'm quite a like panicked person. That explains so oh, much. Doesn't it? He wired my brain this way. I wasn't born like this. Oh. Everything's a big drama. Everything. Everything. So, it's yeah. Sort of radical, oh, loud empathy. Funny. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was empathy. To this day, I'll never know if it was actually empathy. You know, also, um, speaking of dad stuffing up, um, dad uh, once, this is a classic, you know, rookie mistake, but my sister drank kerosene once. Oh, my God. Because it was, and it was like, I think this happened before I was born, but it was this ongoing thing in our family of you got to check the lemonade bottle before you drink. Because, see, Dad had put some kerosene in a lemonade bottle <laughs> and my sister was like, oh, lemonade, yum, yum, yum. And this, so for 
for my entire childhood, if we found lemonade in the fridge, give it a like, sniff. Yeah, give it a sniff <laughs> before you have a drink. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.